0: This week on Geek Explained, to celebrate its 10 year anniversary, we're discussing the film that shot Steve Rogers into cinema superstardom as I tell the story behind Captain America the First Avenger. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is part three of Captain America Month. I have been loving talking about Steve Rogers and the mantle of Captain America so far, and I hope you've been enjoying it too. And this week, we're taking a look at Captain America in film because there is a very special anniversary coming up this week. Week By the time that this episode drops, the very next day on the 22nd of July will be 10 years since Captain America, the first Avenger hit theaters. And to celebrate, I am going to be going through the entire odyssey that Marvel, Disney, the whole kitten caboodle went through to make sure that this film happened Uh, we also have of course this week's comics countdown where i tell you about all the comics you should be picking up this week but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. We're going to kick things off with one piece of miscellaneous news, a very exciting piece of video game news, and that was the announcement that this past week for Marvel's Avengers, that has a big War for Wakanda expansion coming out in August, just a month away. We know who our Black Panther is, and it has been revealed that voicing Black Panther, T'Challa, the king of Wakanda himself, is. Christopher Judge, the voice of Kratos from the most recent God of War game and a man of many, many IMDb credits. Uh, this is... Awesome! I think it is fantastic that he was chosen. I think he is going to put in an amazing performance. Uh, Just go check out God of War if you need any kind of indication. Um, He's been in the game for a pretty long time, and he is a self-proclaimed nerd and geek as well, which makes me very excited about this. Um, He's going to kill it and I am getting more and more excited about this War for Wakanda expansion pack every single week. Uh, This is going to be great. Very, very excited about this. Hopping over to comic book news. One big piece of comic book news that has a little bit of, like, sub-news underneath it is that uh, October continues to be this in just huge month for DC Comics apparently and that is because Wonder Woman will be celebrating her 80th anniversary so we got three new announcements for Wonder Woman adjacent books for the month of October all of these will be debuting during the month first off we're getting that Wonder Woman 80th anniversary book much like the anniversary books that we've seen most recently uh, Green Lantern dropped his it was incredible it was amazing I loved it um, so that one is going to be kind of in the same vein we're also getting the long-awaited release of Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick with art by Phil Jimenez, uh, detailing different uh, historical Amazons across the history of their culture um, among their people. I am very excited to get more info about this. We've been waiting on this for a very long time, and I can't wait to pick this up. And we are also getting, I think they've announced it's going to be a miniseries, but we're getting Nubia and the Amazons. Amazons, and it's going to be written by Vita Ayala and Stephanie Williams with art by Elitha Martinez and Mark Morales. This is awesome. I knew that when they, you know, took Apolita, just kind of plopped her into the Justice League and made Nubia the new queen of the Amazons, they were gearing up for something, and I am happy Happy about the fact that we are going to be getting a full-on Nubia and the Amazons book. Very excited about this. The Wonder family of books is looking pretty strong right now. So uh, looking forward to this. October cannot come soon enough. Hopping over to TV news, two pieces of TV news. Uh, First off, we got the very first full trailer for Heels, the uh, pro-wrestling drama series that stars Stephen Amell. Uh, trailer looks great. I'm a big wrestling fan. I'm a big comic book fan. So this is right up my alley. It's going to be premiering on stars, which is the only unfortunate part because I don't have stars. So I'll be finding a way to watch this hopefully, uh, probably legally, I'm sure. But, um, It's going to be premiering its first episode on August 15th, so get ready for that. This is a big week. That's a big week for me. It's my birthday. I might be going to see a wrestling show, and then I might be seeing the first episode of this. This is going to be great. It's going to be great. Uh, And then the uh, probably more notable news, uh, Loki. Loki just wrapped up its first season uh, last week, and if you're asking, wait a second, he said first season. That's right. We got the announcement at the end of the finale episode that, unlike like WandaVision and Falcon slash Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Loki's getting a season two, baby. Uh, So we're getting a Loki season two, very excited about this. The show was phenomenal. Uh, I might at some point do like a full on like recap for the series, talk about it, my thoughts on it, review it. Uh, If you're interested in that, let me know. I could do that for like, maybe I'll do it for like an like a Geek Explained Extra or something. But I absolutely loved it. Cannot wait for season two. Unfortunately, it looks like Loki is going to be moving on without its director, Kate Herron. It doesn't seem like there's any kind of bad blood or anything, just from what... Uh, Heron has been saying on Twitter, it's just that she moved on to other projects. So uh, wish her all the best with those projects. I cannot wait to see what they do with Loki. Hopefully they retain the quality, the bar that Heron set for the first season. And I'm just real, real excited about the show. It was fantastic. But rounding out... Uh, our news with film news we got uh, three pieces of film news that I want to talk about real quick Uh, two pieces of directing news first off WandaVision's Matt Shackman who directed every single episode of WandaVision has been tapped to direct the next Star Trek film we don't know anything about it besides the fact that uh, Matt Shackman is directing and I believe J.J. Abrams is producing but I'm excited about this. Matt Chackman did a great job with WandaVision. And I'm excited to see what he does with Star Trek. Uh, we also got the announcement that Bassam Tariq is going to be directing Blade. And we've been, you know, drip-fed info about Blade as they carry along. And I am very excited about this. I'm not very familiar with Tariq's uh, directing um, I don't believe he's done a lot, but this could be the breakout directing, you know, job that really kind of launches him into superstardom. So very excited about this, looking forward to seeing what Blade has. And speaking of comic book movies, we do know that uh, Batgirl is in the works over at Warner Brothers in DC. Uh, specifically, we found out, you know, a while back, I believe we talked about this, that Batgirl is going to be the first DC Comics movie released solely on HBO Max. Uh, they're going to be trying to see how a lower budget superhero movie works for them, uh, and also releasing it directly to streaming, how that works. Uh, so far, they've had success with... Um, you know simul releasing films both on hbo max and in theaters it's helped me out a lot uh but we'll just have to see but the more exciting thing is that we are starting to narrow the field when it comes to who is going to be cast as barbara gordon and right now they have four front runners uh first off Haley lou richardson who's known most for five feet apart uh she there are unconfirmed reports that she's already passed on it, but we don't know. We don't have anything confirmed. But the other three are still very much in the running. First off, Zoe Zoe, Deutch, Zoe Dutch, um, I probably pronounced that. Incorrectly, and I apologize. But she's most known recently for the uh, Netflix show The Politician, which I hear is very good. So, and just looking at her, just from just kind of looking up these uh, these ladies, uh, she looks the most like a classic Barbara Gordon. Uh, especially, I saw a comparison on Twitter of her and the... Um, the bruno redondo barbara gordon from the nightwing uh series and it's one-to-one it's kind of wild but um i'm excited about that we also have isabella merced who is best known i think for playing Dora in the live action Dora movie Dora in the Lost City of Gold um which is cool she's she's great she's fun and then we also have Leslie Grace from In the Heights most recently she played Nina um she was great in that film she was great in that film um I think all f- all of these choices are uh you can't go wrong with any of them um I don't think I have a pick between them because they all have positives to offer for this role so we'll just have to see we'll have to see what goes on um i'm excited and i hope that what whoever they decide to choose whoever they end up going with that they really put their all into this film and not just be like oh it's you know a lower budget so we're not going to put any effort towards it this deserves to succeed damn it it's batgirl it's barbara gordon it should be one of your priorities but anyway that is going to wrap up this week's news segment, and speaking of comic book films, uh, that is gonna roll us right on into the main event, the main course, the Andre, if you will, of this week's episode, which is to celebrate ten years since its premiere, since its worldwide release, we are gonna get into the incredible story of Captain America the First Avenger. The stars and Captain America the First Avenger. I remember seeing this movie and being absolutely inspired by it. Uh, This is the movie that really crystallized for everybody just how big the character could be. It also was more or less kind of a redemption for Chris Evans as a star-spangled Avenger in light of the not so great outings that they had with uh fantastic four previously and it was the final piece in the mcu infinity gauntlet needed before the avengers would hit theaters the following year i absolutely love the first avenger it is one of my all-time favorite movies it is a film that i can always put on uh it's a comfort movie for me and This year, this week, we are celebrating 10 years since that film hit theaters, and while I also want to talk about the film itself, you know, what went into, you know, the production of the film, how it made me feel, I also want to tell the story of Captain America in film leading up to this, because he had quite the journey to get to this place where he was part of one of the most successful superhero films that led into maybe the most important superhero film at least of the 20 uh, of the 2000s so i will be talking about in this week's episode my experience with the film as well as going through the odyssey of captain america in film uh let's just go ahead and dive into it there we've got a lot to talk about so our story begins way way back in the far-flung year of 1944 the captain had only been on newsstands and in magazines for three years up to this point and with the end of the war inside, it looked like we might be able to come out of this thing with a win. And due to that, Captain America was starting to more or less wane in popularity when it came to the uh, the sales. He was very much a propaganda style <laughs> character. I don't think there is another character that I can think of off the top of my head who was created so clearly to feed an agenda when it comes to um, at least North American and uh, U.S. politics, but. As his popularity with comics began to wane, other avenues began to open up for him as a character when it comes to alternative media. And here, in 1944, we began to see serial movies. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with what those are, uh, films back in that time were either one-offs or features or serials. And with serial films, it was kind of like a miniseries. I would actually say the closest thing that we have to it today are the Disney Plus shows, where it's telling one succinct story over multiple parts. Loki is a serialized... It, you could call it a serial film. Um, Captain America you know, and the Winter Soldier. Um, that's Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but it's Captain America and the Winter Soldier, let's be honest here. And WandaVision. All three of those could be considered serialized films. And... Cap's first serialized film was back in this year of 1944 and it was just called Captain America though there were some artistic liberties taken with the character uh Captain America's basically cap in name only and not even really in that because Captain America in this story was a was a district attorney was a district attorney named Grant Gardner um, bearing very little resemblance to Steve Rogers he worked um, in the U.S. and was basically a lawyer by day and Captain America by night very daredevil in fact and he was essentially just doing vigilante stuff and that was the focus of his stories he had no shield there was no war to fight he was focused on organized crime he didn't have any of the trappings of captain america besides the costume and he famously carried around a gun so our boy grant gardner was just focused on gunning down uh organized crime and that was his original stories um we wouldn't see Captain America in film again until 1973 and not even really in an official capacity because the next film that featured Captain America was three dev Adam. If you are not familiar with this, it's wild. Um, This was an unauthorized Turkish knockoff of popular Marvel properties where basically uh, Captain America, who was definitely not Captain America, teamed up with this really um, famous—I believe he was a luchador or some kind of uh, famous wrestler—and fought against the villainous Spider-Man, who— Again, was Spider-Man in costume only and nothing else. Um, Captain America here was, again, unrecognizable. He just had the costume, had a gun. Once I, I don't know what the fascination was with giving Captain America guns, but he didn't have his shield. He wasn't named Steve Rogers. Basically, these two just teamed up to fight this crime boss Spider-Man who could multiply himself by the end of the film. It's very unclear. And at the end, you know, they were rescuing this damsel in distress it was not a good film uh just just not not good stuff and it was a fair amount of time uh until the next installment of Captain America when it came to the silver screen, and this time it wasn't even on the silver screen. Captain America was the focus and the lead of two direct-to-TV movies in 1975, starting off with Captain America and being followed up later that year in 1979 with Captain America Death Too Soon. These were again, very loose adaptations of the character. Uh, This was Steve Rogers Jr., I believe, and he was the son of the original Captain America. Uh, This was taking place in modern day, and I use quotations with that because it was the modern day of the 1970s. Uh, Steve Rogers was a normal dude whose dad fought in in World War II as Captain America and as a secret agent, and This is just, again, it's not Captain America. This... This show, or really these two films, were very much uh, taking their inspiration not just from Cap, but also the popularity of Evel Knievel at the time. Uh, His costume famously had a ridiculous-looking motorcycle helmet. That was his mask. And he rode around on a motorcycle. That was his deal. He rode around on a motorcycle. There was a little disc that was sort of looking loosely like Cap's shield that he could take off and chuck at people. But there was nothing really about the character that made you feel like this was Captain America. In fact, in the first uh, Captain America film in this, you know, two-part series, he wasn't even wearing a costume that you could call Captain America's costume. Sure, it had the blue, it had the red and white stripes, it had a star, but it looked nothing like any costume Cap had worn previously. And he didn't get the original Cap costume from the neck down until the end of the film where he would wear it for Death Too Soon. But again, it was accompanied by this ridiculous-looking motorcycle helmet with these giant rubber wings. It was bad. It was just very, very bad. Though, I will say, the second film, Death Too Soon, featured a villain played by Christopher Lee. I, Christopher Lee, way back in 1979, this man was in his prime, and he was playing a villain in a very bad Captain America adaptation. Um, you know, just, I, don't, I have no words. Christopher Lee, man, rest in peace. Uh, but again, this wasn't really Captain America as we knew him. This wasn't Steve Rogers in the trenches, nor was this Steve Rogers being thawed out of ice. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of connecting tissue besides the name and the costume and in certain aspects it wasn't even that at this point we'd had over 30 years of cap not being really represented i i don't even want to say comic book accurately just accurately in general when it comes to film and it would be a pretty considerable jump before they would try again so 11 years later in the year of our lord 19 and 90 we got one more try at it featuring the captain america film that was a complete mess it's just bad it's you know kudos to them to try and actually make this a captain america story but For all all of the people who had been pining for a Captain America you know, feature film that were unhappy with the caps before because, you know, that's not really Captain America. The cap that they got here was like that weird monkey's paw where it's like, all right, you're going to get comic accurate costume. You're going to get a comic accurate story. He's going to fight the Red Skull, but it's going to be garbage, man. It's, you know, I, I, I have no words. You know, it looks like a film that bafflingly looked so much lower in quality than a film like the 89 batman which is baffling or even i wouldn't even say it's up to the quality of the 1978 superman film and that film had come out 12 years earlier it's just it's very strange uh captain america was you know steve rogers and he was you know shipping off to fight in world war ii uh the thing that bothers me the most about it if you've ever watched this or if you ever plan on it you can find it for free on youtube in its entirety um if you just want something to get drunk and laugh at uh the thing that always bothers me is his costume I mean, the costume was as comic accurate as you could get at that time, you know, with the exposed ears and everything. But the exposed ears were not exposed ears. They were rubber ears that they sewed onto the sides of the mask. And once I realized that was the case, I couldn't focus on anything else. It is incredibly distracting. Uh, Captain America also fought against an Italian Red Skull. The film opens up a Nazi-occupied Italy, and a young Italian boy, who I guess was just very smart, undergoes this uh, procedure that turns him into the Red Skull, and that's, you know, what it was. Uh, Cap does fight against the Red Skull, he gets frozen, he wakes up and quote unquote modern day of nineteen ninety, and he tries to foil a plot by Red Skull again, who at this point has gotten facial prosthetics and has aged very slowly. Uh, this also had a weird romance between him and I can't even remember the name of his original love interest. This girl who he had no chemistry with who's like, oh I hate that you're leaving. And then he wakes up in nineteen ninety and she's like, oh I'm old now but my daughter, who is played by the exact same actor, actress i can't i can't stress this enough one actress played both the mom and the daughter at the same age i don't know what the purpose of this was uh but her name is sharon so yay agent 13 but she's not agent 13 uh this film was once again direct to tv and that was you know that was as good as it got at the time. There is a certain, uh, kitschy delightfulness to just how bad it is. Um, I would definitely not recommend watching this unless you've had a stiff drink or two, but if you do that, congratulations, you can watch this film. Um, it is baffling how they just thought that this would be okay. But uh, the film was Captain America in film form, and it was as good as we are going to get for the time. But the 1990s were a time of growth, a time of change, and a time of desperation for Marvel comics. Marvel had started off the decade very well. They were killing it in the comics realm. X-Men had put them back on the map. They were starting to gain traction in the animation front with cartoons like X-Men, like Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Iron Man. We talked about all of that last week. But As the, you know, decade carried along, Stan Lee and Marvel as a whole saw the success that they were making with their animated uh, adventures. And they were kind of, and I mean, rightfully thinking, like, we should look at you know, jumping back into the film game. We should look at trying to make films about our characters so that we can continue this ball rolling. And so they started negotiating with two producers, one being Mark Gordon, who at that time was uh, notable for producing Saving Private Ryan and Speed, alongside Gary Levinson, who had been Mark's partner with both of those films, but also had solo produced 12 Monkeys. Uh, These guys were deep in the hollywood game helping marvel navigate the very uh treacherous waters we'll say of hollywood and the script that they were working off of was going to be written by leslie boehm who at that point was mostly well known for writing the script to nightmare on elm street five dream child as well as jason goes to hell very much different films from what you'd expect for captain america uh but as the uh as marvel's money troubles started to mess with them a little bit it kind of started to fall apart um they retained gordon levinson and boehm's script but They were hitting some choppy waters, and it was going to take a lot for them to get out of it. As the year 2000 rolled around, they hit another snag. Uh, They had just teamed up with Artisan Entertainment, a production company that had produced Reservoir Dogs, the Tenchi Muyo anime, which makes me smile, uh, and the Supergirl film, not great. Uh, This deal with Artisan Entertainment would include a deal for other films featuring Thor, Black Panther. Panther and other films to be uh, to be determined and to be decided. But it was derailed once again by a lawsuit from Joe Simon. Joe Simon, one of the creators of Captain America alongside Jack Kirby, uh, had a legal dispute with Marvel over the rights to the character a couple decades prior. And now, once again, he was, you know, moving litigation forward. Uh, if you actually want to get a uh, little bit more information on this Scott Nicewander, who was a wonderful guest on last week's episode uh during his uh during his video on Cap's cartoon he has a segment with Legal Eagle and they talk about Joe Simon's uh lawsuits with Marvel but this specific lawsuit which was I believe Joe Simon's second uh was over once again the ownership of Cap over his copyright and was due to the lapsed uh copyright laws due to a provision passed by Congress where, uh, Simon would get the attempt to try and take back the Captain America copyright after 56 years. And this happened at the same time that Stan Lee was also doing a lawsuit over, you know, essentially not getting enough money for everything that he contributed into the boom of, uh, Other Marvel films that were succeeding at the time, that being Blade, Uh, X Men had just come out, Spider Man was going to be dropping in the next year. And this lawsuit carried on for three years, ending in 2003 due to a settlement that allowed Marvel to move forward. Uh, They continued to find success in the early 2000s with the uh, advent of, or the continuation, I guess, of the X Men films, the success, the absolutely overwhelming success of Spider-Man, and they started to look at properties that they could actually get money for. Because at this point, X-Men and Blade, I believe, were with Fox. Uh, Sony had its claws in spider-man and they have not let go since so they were trying to come up with a way to get their characters out there but have more control over them which included in 2005 a deal that almost got finalized ink was almost on to the paper where marvel would be working in tandem with warner brothers to Create a Captain America film as well as potentially get. Uh, other films featuring the Marvel superheroes done by Warner Brothers and if this had gone down like I'm sure this is on like Earth 4 or Earth 5 where this deal actually happened the landscape of not just Marvel uh, or not just superhero films but films as a whole would be drastically different and it's kind of fun it's kind of fun to think about where we would be on that kind of sliding scale of time and possibility if that deal had gone through. But in the middle of negotiations with Warner Brothers, Marvel was convinced to reconsider by two men. David Mazel, who had just recently been elected the first president of Marvel Studios, as well as his second-in-command, and really the second-in-command to Avi Arad, who was headlining uh, Marvel's film division, a young man and uh, still-fledgling producer named Kevin Feige. Now, Kevin Feige, after helping to work on other superhero films in the past, pitched to Maisel this idea of an entire connected universe of films featuring the Marvel superheroes. And Maisel loved the idea so much that he made a deal with the investment firm Merrill Lynch for a blockbuster amount of money. Merrill Lynch would be lending $525 million to Marvel and its studios to launch 10 Marvel films. 10 Marvel films on the slate, they had 10 tries to try and make this money back. So they got hot to work to try and figure out what they wanted to do and which characters they wanted to lead with. Specifically with Captain America, Marvel was very interested and eventually secured a deal with Paramount to distribute the film as well as possibly distributing other films for them as well. In 2006, the following year, we got the first pitch for the film. Uh, This would be, in essence, kind of similar to the structure of the 1990 film, where the first half of the film would be spent in World War II before jumping into modern day, Cap being frozen, woken up, all that fun stuff. And during this initial pitch process— one John Favreau approached Avi Arad and pitched his version of a Captain America film as an action comedy, uh, taking the I would say the most well-known aspects of Captain America and trying to fit it in to the more, I would say, campy style that Raimi had done before and gotten so successful with and steering away from the dark angst of the X-Men films. Favreau, very, very talented comedic mind, and Avi Arad was incredibly interested in having John Favreau on board, just not for Captain America. Arad eventually, after having multiple meetings with Favreau, steered him towards another Marvel character that he felt confident would fit into Favreau's sensibilities as a filmmaker, as a comedian, and as a writer, and that is how we got Favreau working on Iron Man. So Avi Arad has done a lot of not great things when it comes to superhero films, mostly Spider-Man films, but we have to give it up to Avi Arad, not only steering Jon Favreau and acquiring him for that initial Iron Man film, which would not be the same film without him, but also for eventually hiring on Kevin Feige, you know, years earlier so that he could be, you know, he could grow and digivolve into the uh, guiding hand that he's become for Marvel today. But now that the ball was rolling, now that they had the money and they had, you know, very accomplished directors and other creatives in the industry knocking at their door to try and be a part of this, it was time to start assembling the pieces of this film. Uh, The first initial pitch eventually got a screenplay written by david self who to that point was famous for scripts or scripting films like the haunting road to perdition and the did a little bit of polishing for the original born identity script though he was uncredited for that uh for that script job and immediately who Rod. Feige and company wanted to direct this film was the only real choice in Feige's mind, that being Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston was a journeyman director and someone who had gotten a lot of success over the past two decades, mostly for films like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, one of my favorite animated films, Pagemaster, Jumanji, but mostly because of two films that spoke to the sensibilities of how feige wanted this film to be presented that being october sky and the rocketeer joe johnston was also coming hot off the heels of his wolfman remake uh that had just dropped or that was getting ready to uh be released later on in the decade but October Sky and the Rocketeer and Feige has said this in interviews since then just how much those films influenced how he wanted to make this film and so bringing in Joe Johnston was the only person that Feige had in mind literally the only person that he wanted to direct this film which I think is super cool and discussions began with uh with Johnston, and everything seemed to be going well into 2007 when they hit uh, one last snag, that being the writer's strike from the Writers Guild of America that started in 2007 and rolled through 2008. This was unfortunate because as you know timing goes because things just have to be timed this way uh feige right around the time that the embers of this writer's strike were starting to catch fire feige was named to mazel's success was named as mazel's successor and was named president of marvel studios feige taking a more direct hand not having to you know, set his ideas up the ladder to management. He was management. He was the captain now. And so Feige was getting ready to just jumpstart everything that ne- they needed to get done. Unfortunately, this Rider-Strike push them back. Uh, Thankfully, the first outing that was being helmed by Jon Favreau, that being, of course, Iron Man, was already being worked on and was nearly finished by the time that this whole thing got started. And they were able to reach an agreement with the WGA to not only finish production on that, but also to start production on the rest of the films for their slate uh they also in 2008 following the uh success of iron man announced the first avenger captain america on may 5th of 2008 i distinctly remember sitting in the theater uh after watching iron man for the first time with my dad uh I believe it was all of my immediate family, but I distinctly remember us having this conversation because we both loved the film immediately, and we were talking through the credits. We'd never really sat through a credits before, and we were just, you know, talking about, oh, this was cool. Oh, that was cool. I can't wait to see more of this. Oh, are we going to get more films? And then we got that scene where Tony Stark walks back into his home and finds a man shrouded in shadow who wants to talk to him about the Avengers Initiative. And as Samuel L. Jackson stepped out into the world of the Marvel Universe as director Nick Fury, we knew that we were now part of a wider universe. And for me, when he said the words Avenger Initiative and i've said this on the podcast before i've told this story i did not give two shits about the avengers i did not give a care for oh man we might get you know this great film of all these superheroes showing up i was singularly focused on we're going to get a captain america film oh my god we are going to get a captain america film i had been a long term captain america you, you can call me a cap head, you can call me a shield head, you can call me a howling commando with how much I was shouting into the void on how much I wanted a Captain America film. I was over the moon about this, and apparently so was Marvel, so much so that they had a director want to pull double duty. Uh, Louis Leterrier, I probably said that incorrectly and I apologize, who had just finished directing The Incredible Hulk, which would be the second installment in um, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, approached Kevin Feige wanting to direct this Captain America film. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, Marvel passed, saying we know your stuff, you did good on the Hulk, we're going a different direction. And thankfully, they had retained the services of one Joe Johnston, who officially signed on in 2008 to direct this film. And the first thing, the very first thing that Joe Johnston decided to do was to hire on two not-so-well-known writers named Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely to rewrite the original script that I believe had been written by David Self. They did a big overhaul for the script, and he gave them only one directive. Make it Captain America, but also take a look at Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that is how we got the influences of this film. That's how we got all of the, you know, very Indiana Jones-isms that you see when you watch this film. And Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, I think, did pretty well for themselves when it comes to not just this film, but also the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole. And with all the pieces in place, it was time for a green light. All signs said Go. So in 2009, production begins. Pre production was a very strenuous process. They had never undertaken something like this before. Iron Man was, as weird as this sounds, more grounded than Captain America as a character. Uh, With Iron Man, you could look at science, a lot of it was military focused. When it came to Captain America, we're talking about super soldiers, we're talking about red skulls, we're talking about fighting in world war ii making period pieces all of this stuff and also enhancing that with the idea of the tesseract which at the time was believed to be the cosmic cube uh this pre-production process was quite long and at different times a lot of rumors circulated at different points you know There were rumors that the invaders would be showing up, so appearances by the Human Torch, who ended up did making a little cameo appearance, as well as Namor showing up in the third act, though um, I believe uh, Johnston has said in later interviews that that never really got past the idea board stage. But the Howling Commandos were definitely going to make an appearance, and during this time, they also brought in Daniel Simon, who was a... uh, a vehicle designer who most notably up to this point had crafted the vehicles and their designs for Tron legacy. One of my guilty pleasure, favorite films. I would love to do an episode focused on the Tron franchise. I love that franchise to death and having a connection between two of my favorite films in that period of time, both captain America, the first Avenger and Tron legacy. Just, it makes my heart sing. I just love it so much. Uh, Apparently, Daniel Simon was actually recruited based off of uh, Johnston seeing the designs that he had made for this magazine called Cosmic Motors, which was this design magazine that Simon had come up with where he crafted all of these, you know, space age, ridiculous designs. And he was brought on to focus on a lot of the Hydra uh, vehicle designs, though a lot of the vehicles have that you know little bit of cosmic spice to them that Simon brought to these uh, to these designs but as production got underway as we got to the point where things were getting ready to actually make this movie they ran into the biggest hurdle they would have to clear which was casting Steve This was important. This was a big deal for them. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. had been an incredible get, someone who had fought against the odds and people's expectations of him to create a Tony Stark that people would remember and love for decades to come. And it was just as important for Marvel, for Joe Johnston, for Kevin Feige to cast an actor that would be able to be that face, to be Captain America and to be Steve Rogers. For years to come, and the process was extensive. At different times, there were a multitude of actors that were up in the running for the role of Steve Rogers, uh, most notably Ryan Philippe, who had come hot off the heels of Flags of Our Fathers, a Clint Eastwood-directed film about the soldier who raised the flag at Iwo Jima. Brian Philippe had uh, several different, like military-focused roles, so it seemed like an easy pick. Uh, Garrett Headland, who had just come off of the success, or maybe lack thereof, of Tron Legacy was also in the role. Garrett Hedlund, I still think, would make an incredible green arrow. He's a fantastic actor that does not get enough work. Uh, At this point in time, Jensen Ackles was also in the running for the role, who had been killing it on the small screen when it came to Supernatural. He was really starting to hit his hit his stride with that show i believe it started in 07 or 08 and by this point they were really examining him as a character or as an actor who could bring this character to life and coincidentally enough he ended up being casted as the parody version of captain america in the boys season three playing soldier boy very excited to see how they utilize that character and what jensen ackles brings to the role because as of this recording that season has not dropped yet uh they also had another boys connection where uh, they were examining Chase Crawford, who was mostly, again, a small screen actor uh, in in shows like Gossip Girl, but had recently made a big jump into a film with a film called The Covenant, which is one of my guilty pleasure films. It's bad. It's really bad. But that... Uh, that film also put him in connection with another actor on this list, who I will talk about in just a second. Uh, Recently, we got the information as well that a certain U.S. agent, Wyatt Russell, also uh, auditioned for the role. This was his first ever audition after leaving the world of sports. I believe he played hockey. Um, And, of course, it being his first audition, they didn't give it to him. Uh, But the big names alongside Ryan Philippe, who were the main... Uh, front runners when it came to, uh, when it came to news outlets, when it came to what they were looking at and who this, uh, who this Captain America character could be embodied by were two names. John Krasinski, who had made his name on The Office and had recently uh, also made his jump to the silver screen with Leatherheads, and one Romani-American actor named Sebastian Stan. Now, Sebastian Stan had also been in Gossip Girl and also was in The Covenant alongside Chase Crawford playing the villain, I I could go on about that movie forever. I love it so much. It's a bad movie. But Sebastian Stan was a big frontrunner for the character. And after doing multiple screen tests in the costume, out of the costume, with other actors, it was eventually decided that they would go in a different direction. However, Marvel was impressed enough by Sebastian Stan that they offered him the role of Bucky Barnes, which I think worked out for him pretty well, if I do say so myself. But all of these actors that I mentioned here were missing something. There was nothing to say about, you know, their acting ability. They were all fine actors, but there was something missing in them that they needed for Steve Rogers. And for that casting, for that something, they needed somebody who could embody Steve Rogers. They needed somebody who could navigate the waters of a complicated character like this. They needed somebody who had been a lead in Not Another Teen Movie. They needed him. And that man was, of course... Chris Evans. Chris Evans, who at this point was most famous for Fantastic Four, but had recently uh, seen success in films like Sunshine and a lesser success, but a film that I enjoyed, push. Uh, He'd also recently done a film for DC's Vertigo line, The Losers, which he absolutely crushed. But Chris Evans was not going to be an easy get for Marvel. Uh, He showed a lot of reluctance, and even though, you know, there were actors chomping at the bit to play this character, Chris Evans didn't feel the same. He turned down the role multiple times, and almost poetically in the same way that Marvel kept coming to to Chris Evans with different offers letting him know hey there's this and this you know the character is great just like Steve Rogers getting denied at recruitment center after recruitment center, Steve Rogers himself Chris Evans kept turning the role down now uh, Chris Evans has talked about the reasons that he's done it in uh in interviews since then he's talked about how he was acting out of fear he was afraid of the long commitment most uh actors who signed on to these mcu films were doing so for 10 to 12 or 8 to 10 films and he wasn't looking to get locked into something like that he also was having difficulty with his social anxiety chris evans is talked about openly about how much social anxiety has influenced him and influences life. It is something that he suffers from. And the idea of having your life almost upended because of how much uh, attention you would be getting off of a success like this was something that he was worried about. He was also worried about making a bunch of shitty films, which he has said in interviews as well. But after taking some time and realizing that he was acting out of fear that he was doing this because he was afraid and that you should never make decisions based on how afraid of them you are. He started to come around to the idea after having conversations with friends and family, but it was a phone call from one Robert Downey Jr. that convinced him now was the time, this was the role, and he was Steve Rogers. And so Chris Evans was officially cast in March of 2010, and the announcement was made shortly thereafter. But alongside Chris Evans, alongside their Captain America, they needed to round out the rest of the cast. You couldn't just have a whole film about Chris Evans as Steve Rogers and Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes. Though, Now that I'm thinking about it, you probably could. Just the two of them. But they wanted to round out this cast with some heavy hitters, and I think they did the job. First casting Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter, Dominic Cooper as the younger version of. Howard Stark, who had made his first appearance in Iron Man 2 by a different actor. I believe that was John Slattery. Uh, Dominic Hooper would be playing the younger version of the character. They also managed to land Stanley Tucci as Dr. Abraham Erskine, the scientist who created the Super Soldier Serum. Tommy Lee Jones, the Jones man himself, or I guess as we established with Scott last week, Thomas Lee Jones. Uh, As Chester Phillips, the uh, hard-nosed military leader who would be directing uh, Cap and his howling commandos towards the enemy. Uh, They also got some heavy hitters on the villainous side of things, with Toby Jones cast as Arnim Zola and Hugo Weaving, Agent Smith himself, as the Red Skull. But before they could get everything underway, there was one last twist that Marvel made to make sure that things were going as they needed them to go and that was bringing in Joss Whedon in April 2010 Joss Whedon who we have already established as a terrible person and will continue and will continue to establish as a terrible person was brought in to get uh, get the first Avenger a little bit closer to uh, the Avengers film Uh, in April 2010 as well Joss Whedon was named as the Uh, writer and director of the Avengers, which would be dropping the very next year after Captain America, the first Avenger. And Whedon went in, edited the script a little bit. He's said in interviews since that they were very minor connections, um, connecting different characters, as well as, you know, dropping in some connecting threads to the Avengers film. But this was still a Marcus and McFeely joint from beginning to end. And with everything in place it was time to make the damn thing so filming began on june 28th of 2010 and was mostly filmed in london though they did have uh different locations and different filming days in liverpool manchester as well as on a naval base which i thought was pretty cool however there was some reluctance once again chris evans has said in interviews that he was he did not enjoy the process of filming this first movie. He wasn't sure how it was going to go. He wasn't sure how much this life was going to, his life was going to change. And granted, that's a fair thing to worry about. That's a fair thing to be concerned about. I definitely would in that position as well. But Chris Evans stuck through it. The entire team stuck through it. Pretty much because Evans had a job to do, and his job wasn't going to be accomplished alone. Marvel ended up grabbing a partnership with Lola which was a Los Angeles based company that specialized in quote-unquote digital plastic surgery because when you talk about the story of Steve Rogers when you talk about the super soldier serum you gotta show the before pictures you gotta show skinny Steve Rogers pre-serum while he is unfit and unhealthy and to do that they went Bonkers, and they put their trust in Lola to make sure that this happened. Now, the process to this I think is fascinating. So for the, all the scenes that featured skinny Steve and them, they filmed those scenes, all of their different angles, all of their different shots, four times per scene the first time through they would film with chris evans doing his thing with the other actors in the scene to get a sense of where you know the scene would go you know get the framing devices and make sure that everything was good to go for the performances the second round would be chris acting by himself on a green screen to get placement as well as set the building blocks in place so that they could mess with it digitally the next uh Part three, the third time through, would be with just the other actors in the scene, no Chris Evans whatsoever. And the fourth iteration, the final time through, would be the actors and a skinny body double, who would be the place of be in the place of Chris Evans and going off of previous takes would be doing the performances to mimic. Now, on top of this, to also really feed into the size difference, the height difference, the physique difference, uh, apple boxes as well as elevated walkways were utilized to place actors and actresses above Chris Evans as they filmed these scenes. It's wild. I love that. I love how much effort they put into it. And honestly, 10 years later, the effects hold up. You know there is a little bit of like shakiness sometimes but for what they were working with and for this being in ele- a ten-year-old film it holds up real well. Uh, Also, they had to figure out what to do with two other very important aspects of the film, one being the Red Skull himself, which they utilized a latex prosthetic mask by David White, who was famous for doing the prosthetics for Blade Two, Da Vinci Code, as well as the groundbreaking blockbuster, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. I love that movie, and it's bad. Maybe I'm just bad for, maybe I just like bad movies. I'm starting to think maybe I just like bad movies. Between this, The Covenant, it's, I don't have a great track record, but this is a good film. I promise you this is a good film. If you haven't watched it already, which what are you doing? But They also needed to figure out what to do with the shield, because Captain America's shield is almost as important as the man himself, and they needed to make sure that the shield could do everything that they needed to do. So just like with how much they needed to do for the Skinny Steve scenes, four types of shields were crafted to make sure that they could do everything they needed to do for the effect uh the first shield was the aluminum hero shield for shots where the shield wasn't being used shots where the shield was being shown off prominently in scenes the second shield was a fiberglass daily driver shield where it was essentially made out of just um just stuff that they could kind of like chuck around without fear of you know damaging these aluminum shields or scuffing anything up the third film was the urethane rubber stunt shield that would mostly be the shield that you would see on cap's back while he was running around doing things and this was made with uh rubber material so that if you know a stunt required chris or his stunt actor to fall on his back on top of the shield it wouldn't injure them and then finally the fourth shield shield was a total cgi action shield this was the shield that would be used in shots where it was thrown where it was bouncing off stuff where steve was catching it so all four types of shields were utilized in crafting a shield that the captain himself would be proud to throw but alongside the effects alongside the actors alongside the sets alongside the story the thing that really brought this whole thing together that brought this film to be what it needed to be was the music. And Alan Silvestri, who had mostly been known for his partnership with Robert Zemeckis. The two worked together, and Silvestri was kind of Zemeckis' guy when he needed a film scored, like any of the films of the Back to the Future series, uh, Forrest Gump, Cast Away, all Alan Silvestri. Uh, recently, alongside his Zemeckis work, he had also done the score for Predator, Practical Magic, most recently the Night at the Museum film, as well as one of my personal favorite films, Fools Rush In. I know that this episode wasn't supposed to be Eric's favorite films, but here we are. You've got five of my favorite films in this episode alone. First Avenger, uh, Fool's Rush In, Tron Legacy, what else? Um, The Covenant. I just, I love bad films but i also love good films and some of these films are bad some of these films are good but i love all of them equally um it's it's just they're they're good films y'all they really you just gotta give them a chance just give them a chance please for me uh as it happens as well alan silvestri would also go on to do pretty well for himself when it came to scoring for uh, the MCU he have, he scored the initial Avengers film and came up with the the theme the Avengers theme that everyone knows Alan Silvestri is the man. Uh, he also scored it the closing chapters of the Infinity Saga, that being Infinity War and Endgame, and he worked together with a duo known as Alan Menken and David Zippel to come up with the Star Spangled Man, which is one of the... I think, most well-known Captain America songs. I think it's right up there with Captain America throws his mighty shield. It's right up there. The star-spangled man with a plant. Like, it is... It is iconic at this point. Alan Menken and David Zippel were mostly known for their Disney work. Little Mermaid, Hercules, most recently Tangled at this point. But all of them worked together to craft a soundtrack and a score that sold Captain America. Red, white, and blue, all day, Chris Evans, Steve Rogers, the Man Out of Time, the Star-Spangled Avenger. This was a triumph. Uh, And speaking of triumph... And Triumphant Returns. Uh, My favorite tracks from this soundtrack, if you go back and you listen to it, it's a wonderful score, Uh, are Triumphant Return, which is eventually kind of became the blueprint for Steve's uh, theme. Uh, The Kruger Chase is fun and dynamic and is the song that is featured while Cap is chasing the uh, Nazi agent through the streets of of uh new york uh we also one of my favorites howling commandos montage that's the song that's going through during the big war montage and of course the closing song passage of time a song that is during the post credit scene i love it to death it's one or not the post credit scene the final scene before the credits um, i will never not cry at the i yeah i had a date line and that song just chef's kiss. So as things were coming together, filming continued without a hitch, surprisingly. Uh, the first trailer, the very first trailer for the film dropped on in March of 2011. The first big tease came during the big game that year during the Super Bowl, but the first full trailer dropped in March and hype was real. I know my hype was real. I know hype all over was real and Marvel made sure that that hype stayed high because they went on a full on media blitz to make sure that people knew this film was coming. They did a big USO performance aboard the USS Intrepid during the 2011 Fleet Week. Basically a full-on week where every single day that week the navy brings their biggest and most famous ships into the ports of specific cities around the u.s and if you happen to be on the or you know you happen to explore and tour onto the uss intrepid during that week you would find the uso performers performing star-spangled man I love that. They also had a killer video game, which has not been made backwards compatible, and it hurts me every single day of my life because I don't have an Xbox 360 or a PS3 anymore, and I can't get my hands on that game, and I love that game to death. It hurts me so much. I loved that game. Uh, But with all of the advertising out of the way, all that was left was to release this film. It had its initial world premiere preview on July 19th, 2011 and released in the US on July 22nd later that week. <laughs> July 22nd, 2011, so almost 20 or not 20, almost 10 years to the day that this episode is dropping, the world and myself got to see this film. Box office was fantastic. The film made 370 million plus worldwide on a $140 million budget, which, if you checked out any of our episodes during the uh, Into the Snyderverse series, this is pretty freaking good. What you want to do is you want to make double your budget to break even, and they did above and beyond that. So I would say this was a success, especially for the time when superhero films weren't all the rage that they are now. Uh, This film also ended up launching Chris Evans, Haley Atwell, and Sebastian Stan into superstardom. They had been notable before. Uh, Atwell and Stan were on the rise. Chris Evans had gotten, you know, prior success, but this really put them on the map. Uh, The film also featured in its post-credits sequence the very first footage of the Avengers that was available to the public. I remember being incredibly hyped for this, and seeing the post-credits scene for this was just... I jumped out of my seat. I was hooping and hollering. I loved seeing this. Uh, The film did garner a few awards. uh, Scream Awards of 2011. Chris Evans was given the Best Hero Award. The BMI Film and TV Awards of 2012. Uh, The score won best film music award and the visual effects awards of 2012 also gave the outstanding compositing award to the crew for this film. So it is an award-winning film, but on top of all of the pomp and circumstance and the, you know, technical aspect of the film bringing it together, releasing it out into the world, it meant the most to fans of this character and specifically at least i can talk about my experience with this film i watched this film at the foothills mall at midnight in tucson arizona midnight premiere uh, it was me and my friends brendan and juan shout out to them also uh, juan currently has a podcast deepen some thoughts check it out i uh, appeared on his podcast uh, earlier this year it was fantastic he's awesome but this man this film um i remember seeing this and being incredibly hyped about this i was going through some stuff in my personal life when this film came out and i needed this film um i also distinctly remember uh we all brought shields i had gotten this really dingy like us uh, you know steel shield with this you know it was comic version so it was you know, red, white, and blue. There was one really bad hit metal handle that just popped off uh, eventually, but I loved that thing to death. It is now resting in the home of one of my best friends, and uh, Brendan and Juan had gotten the little, you know, plastic frisbee shields from Walmart, which was literally right across. They shared a parking lot with the Foothills Mall, so we did... Um, Shenanigans waiting to get into this film. Uh, if you remember, if you were alive at this point, uh, planking was a big thing. And so planking is what we did, except we called it shielding. It is the dumbest thing, but it was planking with shields. It was dumb. It was hilarious. I had a great time. Um, but the thing that I remember the most about this was the banner. I'll probably, when this episode drops, post up on the Instagram of this show, at GeekSplainPodcast, Pod, as well as maybe i'll throw it up in on uh on twitter as well also at Explained pod uh there was like most movie theaters at the time these big banners that were uh hung up in the uh lobby area where you got concessions and all that stuff and i took a picture with this banner that was probably, I want to say, 10 feet tall. It was hanging from the rafters. It was incredible. Chris Evans emblazoned on it. The shield, the first Avenger, the title, the whole thing looked amazing. And I distinctly remember, you know, posing with it, taking a picture with it, and, you know, going to... uh I think we were just palling around and doing some, you know, nonsense, and right before the uh, film started, during during the trailers, uh, we ran out to go grab uh, some snacks, some popcorn and stuff, and that banner had fallen from the rafters to the floor. And I made a choice. (laughs) This is a 10-foot banner that was at least 5 foot across, and while Juan and Brendan distracted the uh the staff who were working the um working the concession stands i rolled this baby up and took it into the theater with me and i still have that banner to this day i have not found a place that i can hang it from because as i said before it is quite large but i have that banner and it is something that i hold near and dear to me it is something that i will always never forget and never be able to because it's a huge fucking thing but it is a memory that I will always take with me years and years from now and looking back on it 10 years from now uh, it's one of the best thefts I ever had <laughs> we had our very own heist movie alongside watching this incredible film and no one you know came to talk to us about it it was it was meant to be it was serendipitous that I got this banner and Of course, I already mentioned it, but seeing that teaser of the Avengers and knowing that it was coming next year, I leapt out of my seat. We were shouting. It was a grand old time, and it is one of my favorite Avengers, or is one of my favorite midnight premieres, period. I love that so much. And 10 years on, remembering back to the film, remembering back to my memories of the film, 10 years later um this film is a cultural touchstone and i you know you can argue with me about it you can argue to the wall about it it is something that is near and dear to my heart It is something that is uh, iconic you know this launched steve rogers and chris evans and the two of them being synonymous with each other this continued the rise of the Of that, of the MCU, you know, that magic of the first phase, not knowing if it was going to be successful, not knowing if you were ever going to get a second one of these films was delightful and exciting and when we you know got to the culmination of that of the first avengers film it felt like we had achieved something as nerds as geeks as fans of these comic books and of these characters and 10 years later the shield's been passed on the shield was late you know earlier this year passed from steve rogers to sam wilson from chris evans to anthony mackie and the legacy of that shield shield of that character of the mantle of Captain America is going strong you know a lot of people kind of look at Chris Evans and think Captain America and I do too I you know anytime I see him in any film or any capacity that's Captain America to me personally you know that's Steve Rogers but If anything, Captain America and the Winter Soldier, Falcon and the Winter Soldier if you want to call it that, has shown that 10 years later, 10 years after a skinny Steve Rogers hopped into a chamber to become America's first super soldier, with the shield in the hands of Sam Wilson, 10 years later and for the foreseeable future, Captain America may have been the first Avenger, but he certainly wasn't the last. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop and comicsology or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we gotta take a look back at last week's books with the Geeks playing pick of the week of last week. And for me, honestly, it was kind of surprising. It ended up being the Flash. 2021 annual number one uh, this was the final part of the introductory Wally West is the new Flash arc and I thought it was fantastic we have had throughout this f- initial arc uh, Wally jumping from speedster to speedster in different times and different uh, moments throughout the history and his whole journey brought him back to Sanctuary during the events of Heroes in Crisis and one of my big things with that that was you know i've talked about the whole uh the whole story before i actually did a full episode on it if you're interested go back in the archives check that out um but the thing that always bothered me is that roy never got like a true goodbye or good send-off uh they tried to do it a little bit in death metal but i don't think we quite got there this one we finally get that resolution between wally and roy and it was heart-wrenching but it was also wally stepping into the shoes that he needs to fill he is now the flash and going forward in the main flash book he will be your flash and uh yeah just a fantastic book overall i really liked the arc as a whole and if you haven't checked it out yet wait for it to um to get collected or feel free to go back grab the back issues it's a great great flash story and i definitely recommend it but that's last week's books we got to take a look back at this week's books and this week we've got 1 2 five we're looking at 10 books once again and uh i think fittingly we're going to kick things off with the flash number 772 this is written by jeremy adams with art by will conrad and this is jumping us right into the flash this is jumping us right into wally west uh starting off his new career his new role as the flash as the main flash once again uh let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis and then we'll uh talk about the book Leaving past mistakes behind and racing into the future, Wally West returns as Central City's Scarlet Speedster. Now reunited with his wife Linda and their two children, the former kid Flash begins a new chapter in his life. But Wally quickly remembers that saving lives and fighting supervillains may make him a hero, but they don't pay the bills. Luckily, an old friend might just have the right job for this blue-collar champion. And it looks like this first arc is going to have him going up against heat wave. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Flash's rogues gallery, so I am super down to find out where they go next. Wally West is the Flash. Very excited. Uh, Next up, we have Shazam number one of four. This is written by Tim Sheridan with art by Clayton Henry. Big fan of both of those creators. And this is spinning out of the events of uh, Titans Academy as well as the Future State Shazam book that gave us kind of, I guess, an endpoint on where this story might go. Shazam is in a weird place right now. Billy's over at Titans Academy with seemingly not a great connection to uh, the Rock of Eternity, to the Wizard or anything like that. So hopefully we're going to get some answers on why that is. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Billy Batson came to Titans Academy looking for answers. Why was the rest of his adopted family cut off from the power of Shazam? Why are his own powers become increasingly unreliable? The answers send Billy on an outrageous adventure that'll not only change him, but have an immense impact on the school and other students on Titans Island. And that tells you really all you need to know uh this is a four issue mini that will kind of run parallel to the teen titans book just like i guess you could say that the uh the suicide squad book since it was kind of doing a crossover for a few issues with teen titans academy um i'm very curious about this again like the the continuity is a little weird here which i mean i get isn't really supposed to be um on the table at this point following infinite frontier but i'm still a little confused and i wish we got a little bit more um clarification on that but next up we have radiant black number six this is written by uh kyle higgins with art by Cherish chen and david lafuente uh this is very interesting um this is i mean radiant black's been fantastic honestly it's it's been just a great book so far and it's still only six issues in so you have time to go back get the back issues and pick this up it's i've just really really been enjoying it and i think if you haven't checked it out give it a chance i think you will enjoy it as well but let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here who's under the helmet of radiant red Radiant Black number 6 promises fans a red-hot new story that challenges everything you think you know about the man beneath the mask. Issue number 6 of the breakout best-selling Radiant Black by Kyle Higgins and Marcelo Costa will treat fans to a special one-shot in universe story featuring the artwork of legendary David Darco Lafuente and guest co-writer Cherish Chan. Okay, so it looks like um it looks like then we're getting that side story with uh, written by Cherish Chen with art by David LaFuente. And then Kyle Higgins is going to be continuing his writing news for the main story. Um, but it, I guess um, this, let's see here uh i don't know i don't know uh i think marcella costa is still doing art on this but we'll have to see when we pick the issue up but again radiant black's been awesome i really really do think you should be picking this up next up we have static season one number two this is written by vita ayala with art by chris cross and chris cross and um i really dug the first issue i thought it was a great uh update a great revamp of statics origin and to really get him into the place of where he needs to go next uh they did not wait for you (laughs) they immediately were like all right so um statics here hot streaks here and oh yeah now hot streaks attacking him at his home so uh they are not waiting for you they are just going and i am loving it so let's go ahead and dive in the synopsis here Virgil Hawkins learns that a secret identity is a tricky thing when his high school bully gets upgraded to his super-powered arch-nemesis. But if he thinks the fires of Hot Streak burn hot, then he definitely isn't ready for the white-hot anger of his parents when they learn what he's brought to their front door. So, again, like, one of the things that I always loved about Static was his supporting cast was his family. So, I am super, super excited about this. Cannot wait to pick this up. Uh, next up, we have Marauders, number 22. This is written by Jerry Duggan with art by uh, Matteo Lolly and Klaus Janssen. And... We are in the next phase here. We are uh we are on our way into Reign of X. We've got Inferno coming later this year, Trial of Magneto's coming up as well. So Marauders is in a very interesting place, especially because this past week we got a fantastic little teaser for, I believe it was Inferno number two, where uh, Emma Frost all diamond up, holding both Magneto and Xavier's helmets. Ah, this is very, very interesting. So this is gonna be a book to watch for sure especially since uh jerry duggan is also doing the mainline x-men book so keep your eyes peeled if you haven't been already reading this now is the time so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here the past can still burn you the hellfire gala may be over but the flames of hellfire past come licking at the heels of the inner circle so, yeah, I am really, really, I just, I love this book. I love Marauders. I love where the X-Men are at right now. Uh, and we love Emma Frost. We love a White Queen. And uh, I am very excited. And the Red Queen as well with Kate. Captain Kate leading the book, leading the charge. I've been loving this book. I think it is absolutely one of the best offerings from the x line especially right now next up we have another number one this is blue and gold number one written by dan jergens with art by ryan suck uh this is reuniting our boys our best friend himbo's uh booster gold and blue beetle I cannot wait. I have been waiting to read this book. This is issue number one of eight for this mini series by Jurgens and Sook. Uh, the boys are back, blue and gold, in their own comic again, and the dynamic duo will be wreaking havoc <laughs> as they are wont to do. So uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Application denied. Desperate to regain the spotlight, Booster Gold looks to attract the public's and Justice League's attention the same way any washed-up second-rate hero would. Social media. The not-so-tech-savvy hero from the 25th century enlists the help of his best friend, Blue Beetle, who possesses both the money and the brains to help his old pal navigate the scary world of internet influencers. Watch out, evildoers. Our heroes are live and online. Don't miss Dan Jurgens' triumphant return to Booster Gold with the help of all-star artist Ryan Sook, telling a tale filled with heart and maybe even redemption for DC's two favorite underdogs. I love this. I love these characters. I have ever since uh, I initially read them in the JLI series, which, by the way, quick uh, plug here. Uh, good brother in front of the podcast, Owen Likes Comics, is dropping an episode uh, or a video tomorrow by the time that this episode drops um, that is going right into and talking about the uh, Justice League International run. Check it out. He's wonderful. And um, the Justice League International is also very, very good. They're. Incredible, and I can't wait to pick up Blue and Gold number one. Next up, we have Nightwing number eighty-two. DC's strongest book. You can fight me, uh, written by Tom Taylor with art by Bruno Redondo. I have been absolutely loving this book. You knew that I would love it from the get-go, but it has been—it hasn't rested on just being a Nightwing book. So Eric will automatically love this. It's a great. Nightwing book, giving twists, turns, great comedic moments, uh, some of the best art from Bruno Redondo, and that is saying something because that man is a genius. I've been loving this. We got a fantastic, absolutely incredible cliffhanger from last issue, and I can't wait to see how that pays off. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Melinda Zuko's connection to the man who killed Dick Grayson's parents wasn't a surprise to the Bloodhaven hero. But what the former Robin discovers about Melinda's ties to the Flying Graysons leaves the usually upbeat detective speechless. And boy, does it. Uh, That reveal at the end of last issue was incredible, and it really does set up a whole new status quo for Dick Grayson, which I cannot wait to explore as we go through the series. Pick this book up. But the big books of the week, the books I think you should absolutely pick up are the trio of super books this week. This whole this whole week is just an ode to Eric Azana. It is some of my favorite stuff. We've got the 10 year anniversary of Captain America, the first Avenger. We've got a Nightwing book. We've got uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle book and we have three count them three super books for you to read this week I am in comic book heaven I, I am very excited about this so let's go ahead and dive into these three super books first off we have Superman Red and Blue number five uh, this is written by a whole bevy of creators including Judd Winnick, G. Willow Wilson, Brandon Thomas, Mark Buckingham and Daniel Warren Johnson with Art by Daniel Warren Johnson, Mark Buckingham, Valentin Delandro, Barat Mexi. I hope I said that correct, if I didn't, I apologize, and Ibrahim Mustafa, I also probably said that incorrectly, so I apologize, but uh, Superman Red and Blue's been fantastic, I have really, really been digging it, the anthology style works really well for Superman as a character, and I think they've been telling some really compelling stories in this book, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. There's no dog in the multiverse, quite like Superman's real best friend, Crypto. Join us this month for an epic retelling of Superman's canine companion's origin story, along with four additional tales about the Man of Steel, including one that proves that even in his secret identity... Clark Kent is just as super. While Superman is known for his larger-than-life heroism, in this issue we tell the story of a delicate infant rocketed through the unforgiving universe. Also, meet for the first time the man rescued by Superman more often than anyone else in the multiverse. And follow Pa Kent as he learns what it really means to be the father of a superhero. You won't want to miss the penultimate issue of this star-studded anthology celebrating the Man of Steel. That makes me sad. Uh, penultimate issue, which means there's only going to be six issues of this. Ah, uh, uh, makes me sad. But the book has fit, been fantastic so far. I'll definitely be picking this up in trade as well. And these stories sound like a blast. So definitely pick this up. Next up, we have Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow number two. Uh, two of eight, in fact. This is written by Tom King with art by Bilquis Evely, And I was blown away by issue number one. Uh, I am a sucker for uh, Western stories told in space, and this was right up my alley. Like, you could not have asked for a more Eric-targeted book. Like, it's crazy. Um, I really, really dug the first issue. I think it left our characters, or the lead characters in the story, in a really interesting position, and I am absolutely just... Oh, super excited to see where uh, the story goes next. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Chapter two. After the shocking conclusion of last issue, Supergirl and her new friend Ruthie find themselves stranded with no way to pursue Krem, the murderous King's agent. Each moment this fugitive roams free, the more beings become dangerously close to dying by his hand. There is no time to lose, so our heroes must now travel across the universe the old-fashioned way, by cosmic bus. Little do they know their journey will be a dark one filled with terrors that not even the Maid of Might is prepared to to face can karazor el lie low enough to ensure their safe passage i love the title the maid of might it is not used as nearly as often as it should be and i am super excited to see stuff like verbiage like that used um this book is fantastic it's a great little western tale of revenge and supergirl is caught up in the middle of it i cannot wait to pick this up But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is, to the surprise of no one, Superman and the Authority number one. This is written by Grant Morrison with art by Mikkel Janine and Jordi Belair. Um, I have been waiting for this book. Quick aside, uh, Mikkel Janine also on Twitter this past week posted up his designs for this older Superman, and they are chef's kiss um i thought that no one would ever be able to correctly um uh to accurately depict superman in his kingdom come design as faithfully or as breathtakingly as alex ross did who designed it but mikel janine is coming real freaking close um he put out a full-on superman kingdom come design that just looks like perfection, I can't, I can't describe it. It is incredible. You need to go see this design for yourself. But this is the big book from Morrison and Janine. Morrison coming back to Superman for the first time, I think, since they did um, his his new 52 run right you know superman's new 52 run grant morrison they did an incredible job um re or kind of retrofitting superman's origin for the new 52 and now we get to see grant morrison go back to an aged superman like they did with all-star superman and see and get to play around with characters like uh, like the enchantress we've got um why am i blank manchester black i wanted to say black manchester and i was like that's not his name uh manchester black and natasha irons who has been getting some uh attention recently thanks to superman and lois which is fantastic you need to be watching it uh superman's just doing real well for himself when it comes to multimedia right now but let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here sometimes even superman finds a task almost impossible Sometimes even the last son of Krypton needs to enlist help. Some tasks require methods and heroes that don't scream Justice League. So... Clark Kent, the Metropolis Marvel, seeks out Manchester Black, the most dastardly of rogues, to form an all-new authority, tasked with taking care of some business on the sly. Not only will Black know the right candidates for the team, but if Superman can make him behave himself and act in the service of the greater good, then he'll prove literally anyone can be a hero. They'll have to move quickly, however, as the Ultra-Humanite forms his own team to take out the Man of Steel. This new limited series helps launch an all-new Superman status quo, setting up story elements that reverberate across both action comics and Superman: Son of Kal-El in the months to come. So, yeah, not only are we getting Superman in The Authority, not only are we getting The Return of Manchester Black, one of my favorite Superman rogues, but we're also getting the Ultra-Humanite making his own team, I am oh man this is this is a great this is a great week for comics i told you i told you it was a great week for comics but i cannot wait to pick these books up to recap here uh we've got the flash number 772 shazam number one radiant black number six static season one number two marauders number 22 blue and gold number one nightwing number 82 superman red and blue number five supergirl woman of tomorrow number two and superman and the authority number one and that is going to bring us to the wrap up. If this is your first time joining us on the Plane podcast and you like what to do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. Uh, we drop new episodes every single Wednesday. And honestly, ratings, reviews, subscriptions, they really do help me out, really helps the podcast out in this weird algorithm space. Kind of raises our stock in the podcasting uh world and really gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. We are so, so close to uh, 20 ratings and reviews um, or 20 ratings. Um, I am very, very, very excited about this. I just need three more reviews for the podcast. So if you would be so kind, feel free to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. And if you do give us a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, podcast itunes uh, i will read your review here live on the podcast you can join the likes of our mighty nine that includes cfire nd josh from panels to pixels matt draper burrito man 88 Doug from for every kind of geek don swanson that guy brian mouth dork and dallas meeks I want to say a big old thank you to these fine folks for their review and i cannot wait to hear you Yours. Also, if you want to be part of our Geek Explain mailbag, if you have a, a question for me, you want to get a quick pitch, my thoughts on something, or maybe you want some comic recommendations on something we haven't covered on the podcast yet, feel free to email me. I do read everything that is sent to me, and I really do appreciate what. Um, I really appreciate everything that comes in it makes my heart sing that I'm actually getting to uh, do this and it's becoming part of people's lives it really it really makes me happy so if you do want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag feel free to write in to uh, geeksplain at gmail.com put mailbag in the subject header and I will read your email here and finally if you want to follow us if you want to keep up to date with the podcast participate in polls that decide future episodes or maybe you just want to shoot the shit on the latest geeky news feel free to Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at GeeksplainPod. That's at Geeksplain P-O-D. And that is going to do it for part three of Captain America Month. It is just going by super quick. I did not think that the month was going to fly by as it has, but I'm very proud of the episodes we've put out so far. Um, all of them have been fantastic. And this week we got to celebrate one of my favorite films of all time. Um, I I genuinely love Captain America the First Avenger, and I love every single um, every single moment that we've gotten because of that film it makes my heart sing um, I will be if you are uh, following us on Instagram I will be putting up some photos of the uh, of the premiere that me and my good brothers Brendan and Juan went to um, it, it was a fun time and I still do have that banner that's in uh, it's in my room right now uh, so hopefully you know we're doing some renovations here, moving some things around, and I might find a place to pin that up soon. Uh, and with it celebrating 10 years now, would be the perfect time. But I hope you've been enjoying uh, Captain America Month so far. I know I've been loving it. I've been loving putting this out and the response that I've been getting has been really great. So uh, look forward to next week. Next week is going to be the finale of Captain America Month. Very excited, even though it is bittersweet because we'll be saying goodbye for now to our boy Steve Rogers, but very excited to get to that so tune in for that next week same geek time same geek channel but for now for geeksplain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening stay safe and we will see you next time